Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. It's the story of the last decade of equity investing. But while we say the last decade, it could also be replaced with the last year, the last month, or the last week, which is that since 2010, the Russell Growth Index has returned double the Russell value. This trend seems to only be accelerating through this year, with the spread between the two indices growing to over 30% this year alone. And so whatever historic lens we look through, whether it be a longer lens like a decade or a shorter lens like a year or a calendar quarter or a month, it seems like value investing underperforms the broader market and perhaps is destined to continue to underperform going forward. Which brings us to our topic today, which is to ask ourselves, are value stocks dead? Here to help me answer the question is Matt Glazer, our head of equity and non-traditional investments at Wilmington Trust. Matt, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the basics. We toss around these terms like growth and value, but growth stocks don't really mean just the three or four big tech stocks. Actually, at any given point in time, we could take all the stocks in the S&P 500, or if you will, the Russell 1000, and you can divide them in half and say half are growth and half are value. So let's start perhaps with a very simple defining of the terms. What do we mean when we say a growth stock or a value stock? So, Tony, value investing is an approach that involves investing in securities that appear underpriced by some measure of fundamental analysis. So, albeit, you know, it could be price to earnings, price to book, price to sales, where growth investing involves a, a philosophy of investing in companies that exhibit above average growth, typically in revenues and or earnings. Historically, you know, certain sectors such as technology, certain segments of the healthcare complex like biotechnology, medical devices, and certain subsegments of consumer discretionary have been viewed as growth areas, while financials, energy, industrials, materials are associated as value areas. So, Matt, I know it's tricky to be either a growth investor or a value investor, and some people have religion around these topics. They think that over time, value is going to always win over growth, and other people think that value is never going to come back the way it has, and growth is the future. But when you think about the way these perform over a cycle, is there typically some repeatability, or is there a pattern when the economy is doing well, you tend to see one type of stock perform better, and when the economy is really struggling or in recession, you tend to see another type of stock perform better? Well, they say, Tony, that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And, and we see that in this area of, of kind of that growth and value way of investing. Typically, in the height of a recession, people are looking for growth uh, more often. And then, you know, coming out of a recession, when the growth prospects for the economy pick up, people look to value as a way to uh, garner returns. When we look back in history, of course, it doesn't always play out that way. And certainly, when I look back on on my career at uh, the various points in time, going back to the late 90s and then to the global financial crisis and and today, um, we're at a period today of historic uh, levels of dispersion in terms of relative outperformance of growth versus value. 
And on a relative valuation basis, value stocks are trading at a, a lower price to sales multiple today than uh, versus the broader S&P than any time uh, since 1999. When I started my career, not everyone knows I was a tax lawyer by background, but I started my career on the investment side at Sanford Bernstein in the late 90s. And when I started, um, at the time you referred to the internet bubble, when the internet was sort of first created, value was so crushed and so annihilated that at Bernstein, we were really feeling the pain for a long time. But then, of course, these folks, these legends in the, in the investment industry, like Lou Sanders and Roger Hertog, they were redeemed and value came back like a phoenix um, and crushed growth for a long period of time. That was really one of, the, I think, the archetypical um, rotations from growth to value back in that period. I'm wondering if we're going to see the same thing here. Just think about Warren Buffett, which is, uh, you know, he's viewed by many folks as the icon of value investing. Berkshire Hathaway uh, is down uh, roughly 8% year to date. And his typical uh, subsector exposures in airlines and banks and railroads and energy uh, have have not been the place to be. Now, in recent years, of course, he's he's uh, had a, a big Apple position. Apple right now represents about 45% of Berkshire's market capitalization. But when people talk about the death of value investing or you know, say things like it's different uh, this time, it often proves to be a, a pretty dangerous phrase to utter in investing. And my hunch is we've reached extreme levels as we're seeing lots of articles and lots of statements along those lines. What are the fundamental economic variables or characteristics that would really drive the profits of a value company where a growth-oriented company might, might suffer? And, and maybe from that, we can start to evaluate whether those conditions may be forthcoming. We've been living in a, a low-growth, low-rate world, Tony, as you know. And Growth stocks often trade at a premium in such a world as investors place a higher value on the growth and durability of future cash flows. In a, in a rapid expansion, when profit growth is accelerating and abundant, investors are less likely to pay a premium for expensive growth stocks. But in the kind of world we're in now, low growth, low rate world, economically sensitive companies that have on the margin less reliable earning streams and the future cash flows are discounted at a lower rate, uh, they cause investors to value them less. And so we're in a period now, this pandemic period, and even in a post-COVID world, it's been said that a crisis tends to accelerate trends. And the major trends of our time, if you think about the last you know, 10 years, the trend toward digitization, you know, the more recent trends toward e-commerce, they're just changing the landscape. And so as, a, as we think about the whole kind of value growth you know, debate, we're basically focused on the whole concept of what it means to be a value investor is changing. Kind of the old way of looking at companies at, on a price to book level. Well, if, if a lot of companies are have less capital intensive balance sheets, maybe price to book isn't the right way to look at things. You mentioned one thing in, in that description of what a value company is that I think it's important to level set for the listeners, which is that when I think about value stocks, I think about interest rates. They tend not to do as well when interest rates are so low. 
And one of the reasons is that the financial sector makes up a large component of the value universe and banks don't do well when interest rates are low because they're essentially selling capital, they're sending, they're selling loans. So if rates are low, their compensation for selling those loans or capital is reduced. When people look at these stocks that have fairly durable earnings, but may not be growing their earnings very quickly, they're essentially paying for that future earnings stream and they're discounting it. And so when rates are low, that means that those future earnings aren't as worth as much. Absolutely. I mean, lower rates mean profits further in the future matter more to the share price. So companies with solid, steady, durable earnings in, in this kind of economy are worth more. You know, so the future cash flows are discounted at a lower rate in a lower rate environment. And so you couple that with the massive disruptive changes that we're seeing in the te- technology sector and how certain traditional value companies are, uh, in some cases, more adept at embracing technology and interacting with their customers via technology. It's changing the whole paradigm of, of how to evaluate companies and analyze companies. To make sure I got this straight, what you're saying is that low rates, a low rate environment, means that the future cash flow associated with a company, a value company that has a more durable, reliable earnings stream, even though it may not be growing as quickly, in that low rate environment, those future earnings are actually worth more, not less, because they're not getting discounted as much. So a value company, by all rights, all else being equal, should be doing really well in a low rate environment. Low rates benefit growth stocks and economically sensitive companies value stocks have less reliable streams, earning streams, cash flow streams. And so investors value them less during trepidatious economic periods. So, you know, it's it's when we come out of a tough period, a tough economy, that's when people are willing to jump into value stocks. And that's when you see them surge. But during periods like this, a low rate, low growth world, this is why people are willing to pay, you know, rich prices for growthier companies because the earnings streams years out that are getting discounted back are more reliable and they're growing. Okay, got it. So we've spent a lot of time talking about this basic distinction, the sort of classic paradigm of growth versus value. But in fact, the various tools that we have today through financial engineering have actually given us lots of other angles and lenses to understand stocks. It's not just a growth or a value stock, but there are other types of very investable characteristics like quality or or low vol or momentum. Can you tell us about how we actually build portfolios and whether or not are we really just thinking about growth and value or how do we take into account these other factors? Yeah, we go way beyond that, Tony. Like we create globally diversified all-weather portfolios for our clients. We're analyzing a tremendous amount of data where the inputs are constantly changing. And we, we don't want the portfolios to be overly skewed in, in a particular direction or take on undue factor risk. So our asset allocation team continually alerts us to the implicit and explicit tilts that our portfolios are expressing. And value and growth are just two of the factors that are analyzed. As you mentioned, there are a whole host of other inputs and factors such as quality, minval, momentum, size, geography, sector, dividend yield. There's a whole slew of factors that we look at 
And there's a risk piece of how much tracking error we're willing to take. And then there's the the piece where we're trying to maximize risk-adjusted returns by being tactical with specific factor tilts. And that's a lot of the work that uh, your team uh, undertakes each and every day. Yeah, and of course, I, I threw out that question knowing what the answer was. But the idea is that it's no longer sufficient just to think in the world in terms of growth and value. We've really got to be more sophisticated. So that's something that's important to be mindful of as an investor is that it's really going to do best if you diversify your bets, not just among growth and value, but, but among a whole range of factors. One point I wanted to make sure we had a chance to cover, Matt, is getting back to that definition of growth. When we look at the so-called FANG stocks and the role that they've played, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, et cetera, with Apple now being 7% of the entire S&P, which is really remarkable, over $2 trillion now, it's contributed 458 basis points of the overall performance this year, Amazon almost 300 basis points. Um, 3%, in other words, of the total performance of the market this year is that one company, or or almost 4.5% in the case of Apple. Those two names alone make up an incredibly large percentage of the returns for the overall stock market this year. 40% of the returns of the market are just those two stocks. If you take out the FANGs as a group, the S&P would be only up, I guess, about 2% as of mid-August versus 16% when you put in the the big tech stocks. So there's really a a huge difference there. And it makes one think, isn't growth really at this point just a proxy for saying, hey, invest in the top tech stocks? In a certain respect, you're spot on. I mean, never has the S&P 500 been as top heavy as it is now. You know, over the last 25 years, the five largest stocks represented about 13% of the S&P 500 index. In 1999, we talked about 99, it was about 16%. And as you, as you said, right now we're hovering about a, a quarter of the index being in, in five stocks. And, and, and so they are just dominant. And when we talked earlier about how history tends to rhyme and not repeat, 99 was so different in the sense that uh, these five companies are fantastic economic engines, pristine balance sheets, terrific growth characteristics. I mean, in fact, you know, if there are structural headwinds to growth, it's just simply the law of large numbers. As Apple crossed over $2 trillion in market cap and Microsoft and Amazon approached that number, that is, you know, something we look at very closely. But on the flip side, uh, how history rhymes is that there's a subgroup of growthy companies, cloud software companies, as an example. There's about 50 to 75 companies that are trading upwards of 35 to 40 times next year's sales. And they have a very similar dynamic in terms of the, the price people are willing to the frenzy surrounding uh, these types of companies. Um, that uh, that concern us, quite frankly. Matt, we can't have a conversation about value investing without mentioning the true grandfathers of value investing, which were Graham and Dodd. And in many cases, you hear the term margin of safety investing. The idea is that when you buy a stock, you think about what can go wrong and do you have a margin of safety in that scenario so that even if things don't go the way you expect, you're still going to at least get your money back, if not 
make some return on your money. So that's a very, very important traditional formulation of value investing. And I talk about it now because I think it sets a nice context to ask the question, well, value investing is probably not dead. It has changed. Things evolve. What should an investor do today as a value investor or with a value focus that would be different than the Graham Dodd era or most of the time since then? It's a great question, Tony. We look very closely at what traditional value-oriented companies are doing to confront confront disruptive technologies. I mean, years ago, tech was just like any other sector, like retail or energy. And if you think about Warren Buffett, the icon of value investing for years, he repeatedly say that he, said that he didn't invest in tech because he didn't understand it. Now, of course, he, he owns a lot of Apple. But, you know, it's such a, a huge tectonic shift going on in our economy. Um, one of our partners, T. Rowe Price, looks at what value companies are doing to change their strategies to counter uh, technology disruptions. So, by way of example, to deal with Amazon, Walmart has uh, poured billions of dollars into their e-commerce sales program, and their their e-commerce sales shot up 97% in the most recent quarter. You know, Disney to confront Netflix has taken radical steps of going around Comcast and Dish Networks and going directly to the consumer with services like Disney's, Disney Plus. And so there are certain value companies that are less adept at confronting technology disruptions, and there are others uh, that are doing it quite well. And, and, and so we try to kind of obviously invest in those that uh, are at the leading edge of this area. So it's really value with a modern approach, perhaps. Yeah, I would, I would say so. And those companies that are monetizing those interactions are winning. It's as simple as that. So we look uh, very closely at what companies are doing to change the way they operate, given the technology backdrop and challenges that everyone has to face. So let's get then to the question on everyone's mind, the practical question that matters most, which is, at this stage, is there logic, therefore, to leaning heavily back into value, thinking that the growth eventually will run into a wall? Should people be really pivoting towards that at this stage? Well, I, th I certainly think there's a logic to maintaining a bit more balance. And I think there are a lot of investors, whether they like it or not, or whether they know it or not, they're tilting heavily uh, to the growth factor today. And uh, mean reversion tends to be a pretty powerful force in investing. And as I said earlier, that whole notion of it's different this time is is often a dangerous phrase to utter in investing. And so if we look out over the next, call it six months or so, you can uh, focus on two potential catalysts that might create a, an upsurge in uh, the value-oriented stocks that we've been speaking of. One, if there's an announcement and initial successful deployment of a safe and efficacious vaccine, a lot of folks think that would lead to uh, the prospect for a pickup in economic growth or a growth surprise. And, uh, you know, you could make a, a case that uh, banks and 
energy companies and certain industrial companies would do very well under that scenario. And then secondarily, you know, the U.S. election is on everyone's mind. You know, a Democratic sweep, uh, which, you know, certain betting markets have that as a potential outcome, that could act as a catalyst that, you know, could hit higher beta, higher growth, expensive stocks on the margin more uh, than, than those that look cheaper. And so those are two elements that we're looking very closely at right now. Well, it's interesting, Matt. I think of Apple as really being the poster child right now for the growth space, the tech space, the impacts of COVID on the acceleration of digital and the beneficiaries of that. And maybe Apple's a, an exception, I don't know. But one of the reasons that I think Apple has run up so quickly and so dramatically is because Apple would really, I think, prefer to see Biden win because it would alleviate a lot of the pressure on, on the relationship with China. Apple has such exposure to China, both from a supply chain and demand standpoint in terms of future growth, that if we got a democratic sweep, I, I would almost feel like that would be an accelerant for Apple. And the other thing that I think about is that just looking at the underlying economy, regardless of who wins the election, Matt, while the market has been very optimistic, even if we get the vaccine when we expect to get the vaccine, most economists, including our own, are saying that it's going to be until sometime in 2022 that we get employment and the labor markets back to pre-COVID levels and we get total economic activity back to pre-COVID levels. So you're talking about a couple of years of extended economic pain. While there's a recovery, it's going to be a slow one and it's going to be tough in a lot of respects. And as you described earlier in the conversation, those aren't necessarily conditions that would traditionally favor value very much. I mean, I, I push back a little bit in the sense that as dominant uh, Apple is and has been as a huge a part of various indices that it represents, when you think about growth stocks and what looks to be outrageously expensive it, it's not the apples. The apples trading at thirty times earnings and about six, six and a half times revenues. It's it's the zooms and squares and slacks and vivas and octas and spotifys of the world uh, that are trading at you know thirty, forty, in some cases fifty times sales. That you know you could make an argument that in a in a regime where taxes are going up and a more challenging investor backdrop that those higher beta, higher growth names uh, would get adversely hurt. I mean, on our own investment platform, the best performing fund on our platform is a, a manager that owns not Apple as, as a top holding, but all those other names uh, that I mentioned. And then the other thing I'd say about it, you know, the, the other risk factor, if you look at structural headwinds for growth, aside from the law of large number, numbers that I mentioned, any kind of antitrust or regulatory overhang would be a negative for mega cap tech potentially. And, you know, the, the prospects of a Democratic Senate House and, and President Biden uh, in charge, some would argue that the prospects for that kind of regulatory regime or the probability of that goes up, not down. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. 
Well, Matt, I think that's all the time we have today for the conversation, but I think it's been a great one. And let me, as I always do, summarize what I think the three key takeaways are from the debate, if you will, around growth versus value. I think the first is that while growth has outperformed since the great financial crisis over the last decade, we think that this has been due to economic conditions that really, I think, predominated over the last decade where you had a very slow growth period from an economic standpoint rather than the accelerated growth period you have typically in an economic recovery, the latter really favoring value stocks, um, a less discriminating investment market, where you have a slow economic recovery, the market's really looking for stocks that have the potential in that environment to really grow their earnings, thus the term growth. And those stocks have predominated over the last decade, but it doesn't mean that those conditions are going to continue to hold forever. And I think it's important to to note that at the outset. The second takeaway is that the growth value paradigm, while it's binary by definition, if you will, is really not the state of the art in investing. And it's not comprehensive in terms of the tools that we have to invest. Today, we look at a variety of other factors that are all investable to characterize stocks. And for example, quality, is another factor that's akin to value, but it's different. Momentum is often confused with growth because the, the, the momentum in the market has been tantamount to growth, but you can have value stocks running and that could be um, momentum that's in the market. And so of late, as an example, we have been invested in more in quality and as much in momentum as growth because we think that that adds diversification to the portfolio um, both at any given point in time and, and chronologically as you move forward, offering exposure to different kinds of possible outcomes in the market. And so a successful investment strategy in today's world really, I think, requires a more sophisticated mechanism or algorithm in deploying those factors into a portfolio. And then lastly, value has always had its snapback. And so we continue to advise a balanced exposure to all these factors, minimizing what we call tracking error, which is the amount of deviation that we would have from the benchmark in terms of the factor exposures in the portfolio. And that we want to make sure that we're including the kinds of value stocks in portfolios that have stronger balance sheets within the value universe and that would benefit from some of the near-term catalysts that you've identified for us here which which should include potentially a democratic sweep, what we would think would be a higher interest rate environment accompanied with an accelerating economic recovery as the COVID situation eventually burns itself out. So I think those are the key takeaways today. And Matt, it's been great to have you and and to hear your insights on, on what I think is one of the debates that's raged for really decades now. And at one point it's are growth stocks dead? And at one point, is our value stocks dead? And uh, right now, it happens to be the latter, but at some point, it'll, it'll probably be the former. So thank you so much for, for being here and helping us negotiate this very tricky topic. Thank you for having me, Tony. Great to have you again. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. 
This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved.